Thank you for choosing to listen to our sermon podcast. My name is Chris Mitchell. I'm one of the pastors here at First Covenant Church of Anchorage. If you have any questions or prayer requests, feel free to stop by or send an email to office at anchoragefirstcovenant.com. God bless. Good morning. Uh, well, it's like, oh. I was, I was like, do I tell you guys about my first, my favorite teacher? Um, she was Connie Fritz. She taught Chigak High School. Um, she was an English teacher. She failed me twice. Um, but I loved her. Uh, she was the sweetest lady. Um, I, she would, like, I'd bring her so many reams of bad poetry to read. And she was always so encouraging. Um, and, uh, and actually, she was one of the teachers that started uh, Polaris once I got started, too, way back in the day. But uh, she was great. Um, uh, I had a lot of really good English teachers that I loved. Um, that failed me. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I didn't do very well in school um, at first. I got better. Uh, whenever I was, my, sorry, when my kids were little, uh, you know, we, we used to hunt for activities for them to do, especially on uh, like rainy days, kind of like today. Um, and so, when I was in seminary in Seattle, uh, there, there was a gym that was close by, and they, had, they did like an open gym um, during rainy days. Um, with like, yeah, and so they had the open gym time for littles. And they'd set up those like little cars that you know, kids can crawl into, and you know, they pedal with their feet and zoom around, and, and some slides, and, and mats, and things for them to jump on, little t-balls, things for them to play in the gym. And it, it was a great way for them to burn off energy. And usually Alyssa took the kids to the gym because um, well, I was in seminary and I was, so I was doing school. But um, you know, probably Alyssa and I were trying to think about when this, this event happened. And so it was probably shortly after Psalm was born, my second born. But I, uh, I took my oldest to the gym that day. And I brought him to the gym like I always did. And he took off running like crazy because big open space. He knew what to do. And... Um, and I went to the bleachers, which is where I went, and I'd like, because I'd bring my books and I'd try to study and do some reading um, while I was watching him. And, um, but then uh, I saw a couple of older kids there. And, and they must have been homeschooled or visiting or something because it was during school time. Um, and uh, so, and the gym is all set up for three to four year olds, like really little. Um, and these kids were obviously like seven or eight years old. And, they were just going crazy, like going crazy. And they, they were, they were, there were playhouses and the kids would like climb up on top of them and jump off. And um, more than once I, I had to see like some adults, like that obviously weren't their parents, like try to stop them um, and ask them to be careful. But, the, but these two, and there was only two of them, but they, they pretty much, those kids just pretty much ignored um, what the other adults around them were doing. And so I started watching these kids and I, I kind of got a little annoyed, like, hey, this is for little kids. You're kind of like you know, making it an unsafe environment for all the other kids. And I started thinking, like, well, where are those kids' parents? Where are those kids' parents? Do they see the chaos that's going around here? And um, there's, like, this little t-ball set. And I saw one of them, like, whack a ball. Like, and it went across the gym. And it hit the kid in the head. And, um, you know, so there's just, like, this little wake of destruction and tears behind everything these kids were doing. 
But, you know, I kind of put up with it. You know, I was like, oh, I was annoyed, but, you know, I was like, all right, well, that's, sometimes that just happens. But then they mess with my kid, right? And uh, so, so Zeb had a car, like one of those little cars, and he, he would, like, drive it for a while, and then he got out, and he was going to pretend like he's putting gas in it. And one of those kids um, jumped on top of the car, because he was too big to fit inside of it, and, and tried to, like, you know, scoot off. <laughs> and, um, and so, of course, you know, being overprotective dad, probably, you know, you know, I jump up off the bleacher and I chase down the kid to my son's car and, and I, I had him give it back and I tried to do that whole thing where you talk with the kid, kids, okay, but how much longer are you going to play with it? You could have a turn then, but those older kids were having anything, but they just took off. Um, and pretty soon there's another toddler crying. And anyways, after that, I just kind of stayed closer to my son while he was playing. So I could just kind of watch her out to him. And then, but as things kind of progressed, I just got more and more angry at the parents of that kid. Like, where was that kid first? And I got angry at that kid, too. You know, right? I was like, oh, man, I'm going to knock out a seven-year-old. What's going to happen? I'm in seminary. But um, it, that didn't happen. But, yeah, you know, I felt that parent rage in me. Um, and in my head, I started getting all judgy. Like, someone needs to kid teach those kids some manners. Where are their adults at? Um, and th there are a few more interactions, and eventually... I stopped one of the kids. I was like, all right, point out your parent. <laughs> and then I went over there to have, have words. And I talked to their mom, and they ended up leaving. And I, I actually ended up feeling bad about the whole thing afterwards because, like, she had, like, a little newborn baby. And so she was focused on, like, the little baby and not on the other kids. And, of course, that made me feel like a jerk. But in general, I had nothing against those older kids, right? I wanted them to play and enjoy the space, too. Um, the gym was for them just as much as it was for my kids. However, I did grow concerned as their actions started to hurt other kids. And then, when they started to, to hurt my kid, then I got really mad. Um, and it's not because I didn't like those other kids, but it's because I loved my kid. Um, I had a special relationship with him in a really real sense. Like, you know, my, my son, he, he's a, he's a part of me, right? He, he's a product of my love. He's my responsibility. I love him. I didn't hate the other kids, but my kid is way more special to me than their kids were. <laughs> and if you looked at how I interacted with all the kids in the gym and you based your understanding of who I was, on how I acted, how I responded to those older kids, you would get an incomplete picture of who I am. You wouldn't really understand, like, wait, like, that guy's a jerk, you know? I mean, and that, you know, admittedly, I didn't handle things the best, but, but, if you knew my son, you knew how I'd been involved in his life, you get a lot better understanding of who I am and my motivation. Right? You get a lot better understanding of how I interacted in that environment, what my priorities were in that environment. Over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at how God freed the Israelites from their slavery and oppression. Okay? We're going to be looking at it. And there's going to be times... When you're going through the scripture and you're thinking, how could God do that to the Egyptians? 
How would God, why would God act that way? I would say those are legitimate questions. It's worth wrestling with those questions and thinking about them. But I would encourage you not to miss the main point. The Bible is about his first love for his children and the links that he goes to to maintain a relationship with them. Okay? So it's telling that story. So that's what's anchoring the story, is God's love for his children and how he's working in that. And we'll get into dig into that a little bit more. Um, so I just want to have that all in your mind um, as you're, you're hearing about God. And it seems like, well, God doesn't seem, seems like he's behaving a little bit badly. Well, how's it affecting his children? What's the whole story there? All right, let's dig into scripture. Last week we went over the calling of Moses. God heard the suffering of the Israelites. God remembers his commitment to Israel. God saw their oppression. God was concerned about Israel. And then God appeared to Moses in a burning bush and said that he was sending Moses to Pharaoh to bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses asked who he was and what he do to free the people. And God told Moses, it's, it's not about who you are. It's about who I am. Right? It's about who God is. And God's the one that's going to free the people. You're not freeing the people. God's freeing the people. So we're going to skip ahead a little bit. And we're going to go to chapter 4 of Exodus, starting at verse 18. Then Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Let me return to my own people in Egypt to see if any of them are still alive. Jethro said, Go, and I wish you well. Now the Lord had said to Moses and Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all those who wanted to kill you are dead. So Moses took his wife and sons and put them on a donkey and started back to Egypt. He took the staff of God in his hand. Then Moses, the Lord said to Moses, When you return to Egypt, see that you perform before Pharaoh all the wonders I have given you the power to do. But I will harden his heart, so that he will not let the people go. Then say to Pharaoh, This is what the Lord says. Israel is my firstborn son, and I told you, let my son go, so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. All right, we're going to stop there. All right, so Moses, he leaves Midian to go back to his people. All right, his people, both Egyptian and Israelite. Remember, he was adopted into Pharaoh's household. So culturally, he was probably more of an Egyptian than an Israelite. And before he goes, he asks his father-in-law for a blessing to leave. Now, this is quite the contrast from, from the, the more youthful Moses, who had to flee um, Egypt because his adopted grandfather wanted him killed. When he fled Egypt, he was a murderer. But he's going back and he's a shepherd. Moses had changed and grown over the past 40 years. And God reassured Moses that Egypt had changed as well. Right, those that wanted Moses are now dead themselves. And uh, God reminded Moses that he had been empowered to show Pharaoh the Lord's power. Um, then God says something that's a little bit disturbing. God tells Moses, but I will harden his, his being Pharaoh, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Now, this is going to be something that's going to come up in the next few chapters. God hardening, hardening Pharaoh's heart. And there are a few different ways to read that. Um, so one of the most common ways in some of the commentaries I read, it was like, oh, you know, it's a, it's like a figure of speech. 
Um, that, that it lets us know that God is in charge, even when things don't seem like it. So that would mean that even though Pharaoh's heart was hard, um, and he wouldn't let the Israelites go free, God was still in charge of the whole situation. And I think that's a good interpretation. I like it, but um, I think maybe it's a little bit too neat. Um, kind of uh, solves the problem a little bit too easily for me. Um, it's easy to just say something's a figure of speech and then not have to deal with it. Uh, uh, but then I was, uh, I was you know, reading my commentaries and stuff, studying this passage, and uh, in uh, James Brucker's commentary, he offered this little insight. He cautions that this phrase, uh, God hardens Pharaoh's heart, can be a red herring. Right? A red herring is something that draws your attention away from the main point, okay, because it's bright and shiny. Don't forget the main point. Remember, Pharaoh's heart was already plenty hard. All right? Israel was already enslaved. Um, as we're going to read, uh, Israel was already suffering under the brutal rule of this Pharaoh. And by this time, the brutality had been going on for generations. Right? Persecution and oppression had been part of Egypt's relationship with the Israelites. Okay? And this is before that phrase, God hardened Israel's heart. Okay? The heart, the, his heart was pretty, pretty hard. And to blame God for hardening for his heart is to ignore and discount all the other years of suffering that Israel endured. Remember, Moses himself is the survivor of a brutal nationwide systemic call for the murder of all male babies. All right, and that's before this phrase, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Okay? Pharaoh's heart sounds pretty hard already. Egypt's heart sounds pretty hard already before any of this happens. But um, as we keep reading, there's this one line in verse, 40, uh, in verse 22. Then say to Pharaoh, this is what the Lord says, Israel is my firstborn son. And this is the first time in scripture where God names Israel as his child. Right? This is the first time that God specifically changes the nature of his relationship from creator and creation to parent and child, to father and child. Okay? God names the relationship as intimate and personal. It's not just abstract. This is not just some people that God had made. It's his firstborn son. And when Pharaoh was keeping the Israelites from worship, it was like someone keeping a parent from their child, keeping their child from their parents. Okay? What would you do if someone was trying to keep your child from you? They wouldn't let your child go to you when they were hurt, when they were oppressed, when they were suffering. If you could see them suffering and being abused, then your child could not come to you. It would tear you apart. Right? It would tear you apart. This is the relationship that God has with Israel. That's what God's seeing. And this is the context of verse 23, which is like really kind of gets a little bit more specifically dark. And I told you, let my son go so he may worship me. But you refuse to let him go, so I will kill your firstborn son. Right? Stark. Sounds, sounds stark. And that's 
some strong language. But as strong as that language is, sounds, it's not about God's hatred towards Egypt. It's about God's love for his child. It's about God's love for his son, the one that he has responsibility for. God gave Moses a warning to Pharaoh and, and telling, is telling Pharaoh, you are keeping the future, the object of my blessing and my joy from me. Right? You're keeping that from me. So I'm going to keep your future, your joy, your pride from you so that I can rescue my child. And I hear the argument. But what's fair about that? How's that fair for the Egyptian? Isn't that just an eye for an eye? But this is where I urge you to remember. There's more to the story than that. Remember, Israel, God's child, had a purpose. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verses 2 to 3, God tells Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse you who I curse. And whoever curses you, I will curse. And all the peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Yes, God said that he would take his, the Pharaoh's firstborn. But the blessing is going to go on to all the peoples of the earth. Right? The blessing of Israel will go on to all the peoples of the earth. All the peoples of the earth, including Egypt, will be blessed through the child of Abraham. And now, coming from our hindsight, our, our, our knowing the fullness of Scripture, we know that Jesus is the, bl the blessing that Israel was growing into. Right? Jesus is the embodiment of Israel. And Jesus is the blessing that's promised to all the peoples of the earth. And Jesus is the future of Egypt. Not Pharaoh's child, but the Lord God's child. Jesus. And, and if you remember, right, I went over this a couple weeks ago, Pharaoh was not, not you know, just the ruler, right? He was considered to be a priestly representative of the Egyptian pantheon of gods. And, and, and he himself was, was considered to be a god. And yes, as we read, the, the slavery of the Israelites is obvious and blatant. But we can easily miss that the Egyptians too were under bondage and oppression. The Egyptians were under bondage and oppression too. The bondage and oppression of a false god. And God heard their suffering too. Right? God remembered his commitment to them as his creation. Right? That he wanted to rescue. He saw their brokenness and their alienation from him. And God was concerned for Egypt too. And when Egypt, uh, sorry, when verse 23 claims that God will kill Pharaoh's firstborn, yeah, you know, it kind of harkens back. It, it reminds us, it might remind you of the murder of the innocent Israelites um, that Moses uh, escaped from. But it also foreshadows the death of the firstborn child of God that will bring about the Egyptians' freedom for the bondage of slavery, the slavery of sin and death. And how does that freedom occur? It occurs on the cross of Jesus Christ. On the cross of Jesus, God's own son takes on the sin of the world. He removes any accusation, takes the blame upon his shoulders, so that whomever calls upon his name can experience the freedom that God intended. When God was at work to set Israel free, God was also at work 
to set free the Egyptians. And God was at work to set us free, to set you free, and set me free. My favorite uh, passage of scripture, um, you know, the one I have tattooed on my arm, everybody always asks me about it, it's Ephesians 2. Um, starting at verse 14. For he himself is our peace, who made the two groups one, and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with all its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, which, by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. And through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens of God's people and also members of this household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirits. You hear that? As we read these verses, remember in the passage we just read at the beginning that God calls Israel his firstborn. Yes, Israel's God's child. But it's not his only child. It's not his only child. Egypt belongs to God as well. You belong to God as well. You are his child. And through Jesus, God invites all people to be part of his family, part of his household. Right, a little later in Ephesians 3, this is the mystery. The mystery is that through the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body and sharers in the promise of Christ Jesus. Through Jesus, God brings home all of his household together. And that has always been the plan. Right, that's always been the plan. And so, when we read these stories, these hard stories about things that are coming up, and like we read, remember, it's not about God hating Egypt. It's about God working to redeem all of us. God loves the people of Egypt. It's like God loves you, just as he loves Israel. And through your life, even before you were born, God was at work to free you from the bondage of sin. Just as God was at work to free Israel and Egypt and everyone else. And that's how God works. Um, even, um, most of you guys know, I, I was born in Korea. In 1907, um, in Pyongyang, which is the capital of North Korea, there was a great revival. And that is when Christianity came to Korea. Like, really, when it actually blossomed. There were a few missionaries there, there before. But in 1907, there was a massive famine. Um, Korea was um, occupied by Japanese. Um, but they were still allowing um, some foreign missionaries. Um, and in, in the ghettos, the poverty there, um, through the preaching of, of one convert, and I can't remember his name, I think it's Sol, Sol, Sol Jin Im, Il, 
But anyways, revival broke out in Korea. Turned, like, changed Korea's nature overnight. Changed Pyongyang, um, which became like, like kind of the spiritual capital of Seoul. It's now North Korea, but um, but then actually, then during the Korean War, um, all the Christians had to flee to the south because uh, North like was a communist country, and that's actually how that spread the the gospel through South Korea. Um, is 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 how God planted that there, right? Because God was at work redeeming the Korean people, and actually now Korea is the number one missionary sending country in the world, more than the U.S. <laughs> um, and God was at work. God is at work, right? And my my mom, when she was a little girl, so she remembers going to church. Um, now, she she was um, she she grew up as a Buddhist, and uh, when she grew up as a Buddhist, she um, she said she grew up like a Buddhist, like Americans grow up as Christians, right? Like not knowing anything about Jesus, but just that's just kind of culturally what you called yourself. Um, so she grew up a Buddhist, but she remembered a couple times going to a church. And so later, whenever she immigrated to the United States and she was lonely and she was hurt, she found the Korean church there. And then she was able to become part of it. Her faith was able to develop and she was able to grow in her faith. Right? God works through generations. Through generations. Right? And you have a spiritual lineage. Okay, I don't know how you came to faith, but I bet you it's a story something like that. How it didn't just start with you. Maybe it started with your parents, and it started, or it started with their parents, and how God worked, and how God brought people there, and helped and helped them when they were lonely and they were broken, and they were hurt. That's how God works. This is the fierce love of God we're talking about. Um, earlier in the service, we saying how deep the Father's love for us, and I am convinced we cannot answer that question. We don't know how deep God loves us because God loves us more than we comprehend. Right? The song says, how vast beyond all measure. God loves us more than we can know. And he will go further than we can ever realize to bring us into his family. Um, and according to Ephesians, the whole arc of history is meant to bring us into relationship with our Heavenly Father. Right? To make us one. Out of all these many tribes. Right? It's to make us one. And this is something that both Israel and Egypt are going to find out as we continue to work our way through the Exodus story over the next coming weeks. Uh, and, uh, okay, there are some other really crazy stories. Actually, the, there's a little story that's like two verses that's really crazy. I really wanted to preach on it, but it's so complicated it'll take too long. I pray, this is my encouragement to you, over this next week, read that story. It's like two verses long. And read about it and think, hey, what is this saying about God's goodness? What's this saying about, like, God's plan? Okay? Um, what is circumcision anyways? Because it's a circumcision story. It's graphic. Um, but, uh, and I, I would love to dig into it. I don't have time into it. But um, if you guys want to talk to me about it, um, I'd love to talk to you about it because it's a really cool story. Um, and nobody agrees on what the story means. I read seven different commentaries, uh, three by Jewish scholars, one by a Muslim scholar, and they were all arguing over what it means. All of them had different interpretations. Um, um, so, but uh, it's a really cool story. And it does show God's faithfulness and God's love uh, for, uh, the, for his people and um, him working through. Yeah. 
So I know it's only just a couple verses. I'm saying it's two verses, maybe it's three, but it's really short. Let's pray. Dear God, um, as we go through our, our day and our week, as we move through our lives, God, Lord, I pray that we encounter reminders of your love then, and that we can receive them, that we can acknowledge them, that we can, uh, that we can work through them, that we can be challenged by them, Lord. Because we know, because I know that you love me and that you love every person here, Lord. And if they don't, and um, Lord, I just pray that if, if somebody here does not know your love, Lord, they can, that they be, that you goad them into finding it, to, to, to discovering how it's something that's been around them this whole time. And I pray that you help them to receive it, Lord, that you let it work in their lives, Lord, that you let it bring healing to them, Lord. We pray, Lord, that we can live into the future that your love is bringing us into. Give us strength to follow you um, and the courage to continue to say yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, I repent. Yes, I want to turn around. Yes, I want to be part of your family. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.